Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Bobby. I, I do music here most of the time. I get to teach every once in a while. So if you're new here, um, welcome. Glad that you are here. Um, welcome to VWS. What is VWS, you may ask? Well, let me tell you. Uh, let me introduce you to somebody that I'd like to think is a friend of mine. He's not. He's an author. He's a speaker. His name is John Acuff. He has a, a blog um, that kind of launched his career in, in writing and speaking and all these things, but it's called Stuff Christians Like, and it's just kind of a satirical view of some of the silly things we Christians do. So it's everything from like the side hug to, you know, no interlacing fingers when you're holding hands and praying, you know, like just all the kind of funny things. And, and he's, he's very much a devout believer, but he just has, is a uh, very, very funny guy. So yesterday he wrote a blog post uh, called the Everyone is on Vacation, Anything Goes Church Service, a.k.a. Tomorrow. <laughs> he goes on to say, this is what he says. He says, it's a poorly kept secret that the weekend before or after a big holiday, your church is going to do things a little differently than on most Sundays. That is, with a large portion of the congregation out on vacation. However, this is pretty full. You guys are doing pretty good. Uh, they're going to mix it up a little bit. For instance, at a lot of churches, the younger ministers are always asked to preach. <laughs> the senior pastors know that it is a lot safer to have some rough-around-the-edges ministers say something crazy to 400 people rather than 800 people. <laughs> the same goes with music. Uh, go tomorrow in the United States, and you're bound to see some guy who's always been in the background step forward for a totally unexpected guitar solo, or a woman that's always wanted to lead worship will suddenly be behind the mic for the first time. Obviously, Sylvia is a pro, so she's, she's amazing. Uh, he, he goes on to call it Vacation Weekend Syndrome, or VWS. So welcome to VWS. <laughs> so he goes on to say, he says, I'd like to offer eight ways that your church can spice up the service today to avoid Vacation Weekend Syndrome. Number one, controversy. Since a lot of folks won't be in church because they are out on vacation, use this opportunity to address all of the most controversial issues, talk about politics, popular books, and anything else that otherwise would get the crowd riled up and upset. That way, whenever someone says, I wish this church was not so seeker-focused and dealt with some of the tough issues, you can reply, you must not have been there for Obama Drug Sex Sunday. <laughs> Number two, he says snakes. He's like, no, we're not going to do it. Number three, church sumo wrestling. What better way to iron out tensions between church staff or church parishioners with sumo wrestling? Skittles. Who wouldn't want Skittles thrown at them during a, during a message? Weird instruments. I vote for the glockenspiel and the vibraslap. He says, go on for number six, you can practice Christmas in July. Christmas Eve is always the biggest service in any church, so why not have like a dress rehearsal in, in July and get well prepared? Uh, do the whole service in haikus. He gives an example. Jesus, Jesus was so cool, he gave his life for our sins. Let's be close to him. Amen. We're done. And then he says, have an SCL Sunday, which is stuff Christians like, and goes on to say all the things that he could do, you know, that he talks about and have those happen in your church service. So, uh, you guys are awesome for being here. You are a special anointed group that in the midst of a holiday weekend, that especially in Wisconsin is known for getting out of town, uh, you guys are here. And I think that you deserve a special blessing. 
I'm not a fan of Skittles, but I am a fan of Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. And so I think you guys are, are well-deserving of some peanut, butter, some peanut butter cups over here. <laughs> there we go. Go way back there. <laughs> oh, we got a bunch of kids over here, especially, I know, the kids are like, I'm so glad I came to church today. <laughs> Right there in the front. There we go. Yeah, there you go, Linda. All right, I got, I got one more. There you go. There you go, Tony. <laughs> All right. Don't say I never did anything for you. <laughs> well... In all seriousness, we, we're, uh, we're, we're still in this Ecclesiastes series, which has been really awesome. And I hope that uh, it's been a blessing for you. And today we're specifically going to look at Ecclesiastes chapter 3. So if you have a Bible, uh, I'd encourage you to open it. Um, if you don't have one, you can grab one. We have some around in some of the carts around here. You can read over somebody's shoulder. You can pull it up on your iPhone or your iPad. Um, we're just going to use it to, to reference. And so... Uh, to help us get started, why don't we just pray, and we'll get started. God, thank you uh, for this place. Thank you that we have the opportunity, and more specifically, the freedom to gather. Uh, we recognize, as we just celebrated over the weekend, we celebrated our country's independence, and we know that in that independence gives us the right and the freedom to be able to proclaim your name without repercussion. And so, God, we do not take that lightly. Uh, we are grateful and we are thankful for that freedom. And so we want to make the most of the opportunity that you have given to us this morning. And so we ask that you would meet us where we're at and that you would uh, change our hearts so that we can be more like you in our families and in our communities. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so Ecclesiastes chapter 3. So to help us um, read this passage, I think we can use a little, a little help. Come on, I know you know it. You can, you can, you can sing along if you want to. going to go through the whole thing. You get the idea. Kind of cool little factoid about that song is that uh, in like just a, you know, not very authoritative uh, Wikipedia search, um, it says it's one of like four songs that is like word for word direct scripture that made it into pop culture. Uh, U2's Psalm 40 being one of the other ones. Um, and so anyway, yeah, I mean, it is like you literally can pretty much read it down with them. And so I'm going to make a big assumption because I don't want to, we, we don't have enough time to kind of like plow through everything, that you get the idea of the whole, a time for this, a time for that, a time to weep, a time to heal, a time to, so, you know, there's all of those paradoxes that Solomon is setting up. So I want to pick it up in, in uh, verse 9 right now. 
and we'll finish out the chapter. He says, what do workers gain from their toil? I've seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from the beginning to end. I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live, that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it, nothing taken from it. God does it so that people will fear him. Whatever is has already been, whatever has been before, and what will be has been before, and God will call the past to account. And I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. I said to myself, God will bring into judgment both the righteous and the wicked, for there will be a time for every activity, a time to judge every deed. I also said to myself, as for humans, God tests them so that they may see that they are like the animals. Surely the fate of human beings is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Humans have no advantage over animals. Everything is meaningless. All go to the same place. All come from dust, and to dust all will return. Who knows if the human spirit rises upward and if the spirit of the animal goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better for a person than to enjoy their work because that is their lot for who can bring them to see what will happen after them. Yeah. It's like, really? I mean, in one sense, he's kind of saying like, hey, this is the gift of God for you to enjoy your work. And then in the very next breath, he's saying like, we're no better than a dead dog. You know, it's just like, it's really kind of, kind of sad. Uh, you, you're probably familiar with this Robert Frost quote, two roads diverged in a wood and I took the one less traveled and that has made all the difference. I think we kind of see, we're getting this little insight into Solomon and how he is having to uh, approach his circumstances with this fork in the road. He's looking at it with this like, I can kind of go down this way or I can go down that way. And all of us are similar in that, where we kind of all have to face anything that we were going through with something that may lead us to seeing it really negatively or lead us to, as to something that actually points us to hope. And I think the, the thing that is important is that either road that we take, we probably would say, and that has made all the difference. It's not just one over the other. So this whole series that we've been in, you know, this is the third week. It's been really challenging. It's been challenging to prepare for. It's been challenging the way we think. It's been challenging for me personally and I, I find it so challenging to try to pin down a coherent thought that we as readers of the scripture can just run with. Uh, we know that it's inspired, right? By the, it's inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so it's not a mistake that it's in there, that it's in the Bible. It's, it's meant to be in there for a reason. And yet, as we continue to dig deeper into the text, we painfully see the humanity of the author. It's very, very easy to over-spiritualize Solomon and his words of wisdom. I mean, after all, he was the wisest man that ever lived, right? 
And we know that we learned in week one that the wisdom that was bestowed on him was human wisdom. That is not to confuse it to be on par with God's wisdom. That there is still a divide there. That there is still a gap. And in that gap creates this tension. Solomon recognizes that gap. And he is filled with all kinds of tension and emotion about, uh, about what is this all really about. And so there's a lot that we can learn. Um, but we also need to keep some things in proper perspective. That Solomon... Uh, is a human, and his writings can be polarizing. So are we all in agreement about that? Okay. As we read it, you can almost feel the emotional tide swing from one side to the other as, as you're reading his words. You can just see that it's like in one moment he's very, very uplifting of, and sounds hopeful, and then yet in the same breath sound despairing and very, very like, you know, again, that whole like comparing us to animals. And any given sentence can be read as a despairing old man that lost his faith, or any given sentence can be read as a beautifully human attempt to keep our hearts and minds set on the things of eternity. And so instead of reading Ecclesiastes as if Solomon were a prophet, because what was the job of a prophet? The job of a a prophet, he was a messenger. He would receive the direct and authoritative words from God himself to be delivered to a specific group of people for a specific time, for a specific call to action. Most of the time, it was to repent. God's judgment is near, so you better repent and shape up. So the prophet was, he was not necessarily even attached to what he was saying. He's like, hey, I am just telling you what God told me, that this is what you need to do. Solomon especially at least in these uh, texts, is not a prophet. So we should not read it as if he were a prophet. Instead, we get to read Ecclesiastes as a personal journal entry written by an artist that is looking at the world and telling you what he sees. How many of you may have like brothers and sisters that may have had a journal And you stumble on that journal. And you're faced with that dilemma like, do I open it? Do I read it? I probably shouldn't be doing this. This is really intimate. I'm not exactly sure what I'm going to find. That's kind of what we're doing. That's kind of what we're doing with Ecclesiastes. It's like we're, we're, like the Holy Spirit inspired Solomon to write this journal entry that we all get invited into this intimate dialogue that he's having that's confessing his struggle, that's confessing his doubt, that's confessing his emotional inconsistencies. And so we get to read it as a very human experience, if that makes sense. You tracking? We good? So even amongst the commentaries, as I was preparing for this and trying to study, even amongst the commentaries that I was reading, you can find polar opposite interpretations. You have a guy like J. Vernon McGee who saw Solomon as a wayward soul that was turning his heart away from the truth of God and allowing the circumstances of his earthly existence to be swayed in his perception of his worth, his identity, his contribution, even his view of eternity, and in so doing, giving in to fatalism and egotism. Fatalism, it may sound way more extreme and drastic than it really is, but we've all all been there. 
We've all participated in it. How many of you have ever, ever said this before? Well, you win some, you lose some. Okay, sirrah, sirrah. Life's a bummer, and then you die. <laughs> yeah, I've heard it differently too. All of those are these little inklings of fatalism. To say that the, the end of our existence is already kind of set in stone that we're going to die. So everything leading up to it doesn't really matter. So why care that much if you win or lose? Why care that much about some of these things? That is fatalism and egotism. Egotism is saying that, like, my perception of my entire reality revolves with me in the center of it and how it interacts with me and how my perception and how my engagement and how my reaction to the things around me are the thing that dictate the way I see myself, the world, the way I experience uh, everything, relationships. And so Javon McGee is saying, like, Solomon's basically giving in to that and allowing these, this, this philosophy and this mindset to start to become pervasive. That is literally changing the way he sees the world. And it's very, very sad. It's, it's a form of uh, secular humanism. Secular humanism basically says that I am the authority of what becomes good or bad in my circumstance. No one else can tell me what is good or bad because I'm the one that's experiencing it. And so therefore, that trumps you or anybody else. And that's why you can see how it can spiral really quickly. Well, if I don't believe that murder is all that bad, you can't convince me otherwise. I mean, obviously that's an extreme case, but that's where it can go. You tracking? I don't, I don't want to lose you. <laughs> So that was J. Vernon McGee, had this kind of negative uh, interpretation of Ecclesiastes 3, saying that he's actually wayward. Then there's Warren Wearsby, who he paints a picture of this chapter as this beautiful reminder that Solomon is trying to give us to be mindful of God in all things that may happen under the sun. Both of these men are well-educated. They're proven hermeneutical scholars and are united in the core of our Christian faith. And yet, here we see that they could not be more divided in how to read Ecclesiastes. So does that make one or both of them wrong? And more specifically, what are we supposed to do with that? So Ecclesiastes is not an easy book to read if you're trying to just find the formula. We need to be a little bit more honest and put our kind of human and emotional lenses on, try to identify with Solomon. Because the same is true for any given situation that we may find ourselves in. We have choice, but we also have a myriad of emotions and filters that may swing the picture of our circumstance to the negative or loft it up as positive. And sometimes it may shift, the same experience may shift in retrospect. So have you ever had that happen? Where you have a, been in a situation that may seem hopeless or, or despairing or, or critical or crucial or fatal even, 
only to look back at it a year, two years, ten years, and then are able to see something different. Maybe a, a lesson learned, uh, an awareness that wasn't previously available, uh, maybe in an emotional context, uh, has changed uh, for you where you are now able to tap into an emotional place that your previous state didn't allow. I know I've, I've been there. I've done that. Uh, I can think of uh, three stories specifically uh, where I've had to do that. I graduated high school in 1994, um, confessing my age, and uh, I had two good friends, uh, Pete, he was about 23, Kevin was uh, 18, and then they decided to go on a, on a road trip with another uh, gal named Allison, who was also 18 at the time, and long story short, Allison was driving the car, they lost control, single solo accident, they um, didn't hit another car, but they just lost control. And both Pete and Kevin died. Now, I, you know, I had a couple grandparents die previous to that, but I didn't really have much relationship with those grandparents, and so I didn't, I didn't feel it the same way. This was the first time as a 19-year-old that death became very real and very nonsensical and very wrong, and I couldn't explain it, and everything about it just made me scream out, why? Why would something like that happen? At their memorial service, there was a lot of people that were giving sentiments of the tragic loss of their contribution to society and also sentiments of joy. Joy in the fact that they had fulfilled their purpose under the sun and the completion of their faith is now being recognized and they are with Christ and they need nothing and they have been made complete and they are at peace. I so wanted to just believe that. I so wanted just to say, Yes, and therefore that gives me hope. But the truth is, I was wrestling in my own heart saying, why does any of this matter? I don't know what is going to happen to them. I don't know exactly what the other side of, you know, above the sun now looks like. I don't know what the completion of our faith is going to look like. I have no experiential expertise to be able to say, well, don't worry, because this is going to happen. My faith really got questioned, and I started to go, does it matter? Does it matter if I even hold on to this faith? Because people are going to die. People are going to move away. People are going to be betraying me, or, or I may be the betrayer. I don't know. So what does it matter? Sound familiar? I can identify with Solomon. I felt some of those things before, like, is this really worth it? Do we really know what's going to happen when we die? How can we really be so sure? And to some degree, in his own, you know, wisdomly, kingly way, Solomon was exercising his right to wrestle 
wrestle with those thoughts, to not just try to sweep them under the rug, but to get them out so he can contend with the thought. Uh, there's another story. Uh, I call this uh, megachurch meltdown. Uh, John Acuff, that same guy that has that real funny uh, blog post, uh, he says this. He has this quote. It's a very brilliant quote. So some of the darkest moments of my life were when I idolized some level of success, achieved it, only to instantly recognize that it didn't fix me. Chasing of the wind. You know, that's some of the language that we've seen in Ecclesiastes. How many times have we realized once we've acquired that thing, achieved that status, gotten that relational, you know, pinnacle, we gotten married, we had a kid, and even in those things that are, you know, emotionally very heightened, we still are left longing. That's some of that eternity that God has set in our hearts that nothing on this earth is going to satisfy, and so we are left wanting, and we are left to contend with some of those feelings. So this story, I, uh, I once worked at a, at a very large church in the youth ministry department. And no, that's not like kind of code for like, I once worked at a church. You know, I'm not, I'm not this is truly a different church, different church altogether. <laughs> I worked at this church in the youth ministry department. And for all intents and purposes, it should have been a dream job. And yet I was dissatisfied. In fact, I was, I was angry. I was uh, a part of a small team of people that were ramping up a new model that we felt passionate about, a new way to reach high school students, specifically high school students that were born into the mega church, you know, kind of seeker model. For so many of like the boomer generation and everybody gone before them, the, the, the mega church, the seeker model was something new and different. But now you've got kids being born into it, and now they're 17. And this is all they've ever known. And so we said, let's change that. We're going to do something different, and we're going to reach these kids. Spent all summer kind of gearing up and planning out, and then we literally did one service in the fall. And we were told by leadership, you will not do that again. You will do a seeker-sensitive service that is catered towards high school students. Oh, I was angry. I felt unheard. I felt thwarted. I felt like they were just imposing this philosophical idea that was outdated and they weren't listening to what we believed was something that was crucial and was going to be powerful and effective to reach people, to disciple people that could change the world. We believed that. Two of the staff that I worked with very quickly left. And so I had to ask myself, Am I going to survive here in this tyrannical, oppressive environment? And the answer was no. A couple months after Harper and I got married, uh, I resigned. And I resigned with my fist in the air, swearing that anybody that I came in contact with, I would make sure that they knew what an awful place this was and how cruel they were, and how stifling they were, and all they cared about 
was getting the, the you know, this, this machine pumping, regardless of who it may chew up and spit out, and it's going to feed off of others as fuel, and it's just going to keep on rolling. Because it didn't even matter that I was quitting. It didn't matter what I had contributed. It didn't matter whether or not I had been there at all. My health, my well-being, my faith, none of it mattered. It was all, wait for it, meaningless. So 10 years later, literally 10 years later, most of those years being on leadership in a church, I look back on that experience very differently. I've learned a lot about the struggle and the difficulty of keeping an organization like this, let alone one that was that big, afloat and moving and moving in alignment. And so, yes, I would have loved and, and hoped that maybe some of the, the conversations could have gone differently, so emotionally it would have felt better or, or, or different. But when I look back on it, that actually was not a negative experience. Staying true to the DNA of an organization is essential. You, we do that. Uh, eventually, sometime, somewhere, somebody is going to have to put their foot down and say, we simply don't do that because that's not in our DNA. It's not who we are. It's not us. So <laughs> the, the irony the, of this whole thing is that I have said those very words about that's not in our DNA. It's not who we are. It's not us. I've said those very words in meetings here at church about programs that we've thought about unrolling for you. And said, nope, not in our DNA. It was like a light bulb the size of the sun went off in my heart. <laughs> and I was able to go, oh, I get it. I was instantly filled with compassion for that church as well as filled with great regret and remorse for leaving the way I did. It didn't have to be that way. And there was nothing that I could do now. I mean, there's nothing that I could do other than find some resolve in my own heart. But I no longer harbored bitterness to this group of leaders that I really didn't have much interaction with. I, I had respect. I no longer felt that I was the victim, but rather I had hoped that as awkward and sometimes negative the conversations that I had to be in during that time, I hoped that they would have contributed to them being able to refine and be that much more clear and resolved about their convictions on their DNA. And so in that respect, I felt honored. Honored that I was able to have been a part. 
Nothing in my own personal outcome had changed other than my own heart. So the experience was the same. There's two roads to go down. I, uh, I want to dive into this text, but I, but I want to bring a little bit of clarity first. Okay, so there's some kind of theological terms here that uh, I want to break down. Exegesis just simply says critical explanation or interpretation of a text or a portion of a text, especially of the Bible. Many of you have probably even said things like, oh yeah, I really like a, a strong exegetical church or a strong exegetical teaching, maybe, without even maybe even realizing what that means. Basically what it's saying is it's a more scientific approach. It's saying we're going to look at the context, we're going to look at the author's intent, we're going to look at all the players that are involved, we're going to look at the season of life, the other, you know, the cultural context, what was the important in the day, and from all of those factors, we're going to be able to see and draw out some truths. And that, by far, is the best way to approach Scripture. And don't quote me on this, but Ecclesiastes might be one of the only books where you can kind of stick your toe into eisegesis. Eisegesis is an interpretation, especially of Scripture, that expresses the interpreters, that's you and me, the reader, interprets our own ideas or bias or the like, rather than the meaning of the text. So, for example, I don't know what was going on in Solomon's world when he wrote Ecclesiastes 3. I don't. But I think it's pretty safe to say, and this is the eisegesis I'm now reading into the text, I'm putting some of my own thought into it, is that he was probably in some tension. I don't know where that tension came from. Maybe he was experiencing loss. Maybe somebody close to him died. Maybe he was in extreme amounts of pain, emotional pain, that he just did not have the right vehicles to be able to express. And so he put his pen to paper. This is all eisegesis where I'm reading into it. We don't get a specific clarity of where, what his emotional state is. But I think it's pretty safe to say there was a lot going on in Solomon when he wrote this. Can we really fault him as a fellow human being for thinking this way? I think all of us can identify with him, the wisest man in the world. We can identify with him for his doubt, his insecurity, even his melancholiness. He was feeling a lot of things, a lot of things that you and I feel on any given day on any given moment. I so want to be that guy that stands up here and delivers a message that is filled with passionate, secure hope because we know that if Christ is for me, who can be against me? That we are more than conquerors, that we have already joined Christ in victory over death and that our hope is secure in him, our seat in heaven is permanent and unshakable, that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I want to be that guy. I want to be that guy so badly, and in some times and in some moments, I am. But in other times, and perhaps more times than not, 
I'm not that guy. And I think it's pretty unfair to expect that you be that guy or that gal all the time, too. Because we won't. You just won't. There's no actor that can hold up that facade for that long. We will. Remember, Troy talked a few, uh, couple weeks ago, he talked about, we will experience depression. We will experience the high and low. And obviously, sometimes those get more extreme than others that might require different kinds of help. But we're all going to dip. We're all going to rise. We're all going to feel those things. And so because we're on this side of heaven, we are under the sun, as Solomon says, we're forced to wrestle with this tension of our own humanity and the eternity that God has set in our hearts. That it's easy to just say, and, and, and it's much harder than, uh, to then ask, what now? It's easy just to kind of say, yeah, we wrestle with that. It's a lot harder to ask, okay, so what? What, what then should we do? Uh, again, Warren Wearsby's, Wearsby's commentary, I think, offers something. We have already know that we kind of have to take this, not lightly, but just know that it's like there's differing thought on all of these things. But I thought this was a really interesting perspective that he gave uh, on breaking down uh, chapter 3. He says, first Solomon saw something above man. He saw God who was in control of time and who balanced all of our experiences. That's why there's a time for this and a time for that. Then he saw something within man that linked him to God, this eternity that he set in our hearts. Third, Solomon saw something ahead of man, the certainty of death. And finally, he saw something around man. This is dipping into chapter 4 a little bit. But the problems and the burdens of life. And so the preacher, the teacher, asked his listeners, all of us, the readers, to look up, to look within, to look ahead, and to look around, to take into consideration time, eternity, death, and suffering. These are the four factors God uses to keep our lives from becoming monotonous and meaningless. It's not a perfect formula. So don't go making these notes and say that I, I'll just have to look up, I just have to look within, I have to look ahead and look around. It's because you will be disappointed. But I think it's a helpful tool. It's something that we can at least begin to do when we are faced with the fork in the road and we can choose the road less traveled that might lead us to hope, or the other road that may be more traveled that leads us to despair. But either way, we, have this, we can have this opportunity to, to look up, look within, and to look ahead. Now, Jay Parker, he's just, it's, he's, you wouldn't recognize him. He's just a guy that has this little poem. His view is one that I, I long to adopt sometimes. He just says, God holds the key of all unknown, and I am glad if other hands should hold the key, or if he trusted it to me, I might be sad. I cannot read his future plans, but this I know. I have the smiling of his face and all the refuge of his grace while here below. That's a beautiful sentiment and outlook on life that contrasts some of the negative, despairing, you know, fatalistic view. So here's the important thing. If you've been sleeping, I want you to hear this. The important thing to walk away with is that neither one of these views is wrong. 
You're not wrong for thinking any one of those things. They certainly are flawed, but they're not wrong. That's where grace and mercy and forgiveness and love get to enter in. And not just any grace and mercy, God's grace, God's mercy, God's forgiveness, God's love gets to enter in. He is big enough to hear you. He is present, and he is not surprised by the response to your circumstance. He knows that the doubtful, despairing place you may be in is shaping you and refining you to enlarge your definition and experience of what hope in him really looks like. And so he allows, and he waits, and he comforts, and he listens, and he is consistent. He knows that when you see your circumstances, as Jay Parker does, that that is one more crumb of sustenance that is ever contributing to a feast that is yet to come. And so he allows the morsel to entice the eternity that has been set on your heart to be with him forever and knows that in and of itself it will leave you wanting, but that wanting will keep your hope alive. If you've been paying attention, I gave two stories when I said there was three. Uh, here's the third, and it's probably the most telling of my own emotional and spiritual immaturity. Have you ever heard of a Jesus juke? It's basically when you say something, uh, you know, and maybe even just flippantly, and you, you get thrown like the spiritual comeback that just shuts you down, you know. So it's like, oh, did you watch that episode of Breaking Bad? It's like, well, I choose to not entertain my thought and mind with the things of this world. Like, oh, Okay. You know, where you just get, kind of get slapped in the face with a, you know, with a, with a spiritual comeback. That's kind of a Jesus juke. So this is my Jesus juke story. I mean, it's a, it's a sad story, but it's, it's, uh, it's unfortunately, uh, unfortunately true. So right about the same time that I was leaving this, this large church I was telling you about, a friend of ours that stood in our wedding only two months prior ended her own life. And I've never, I've never been so close to something so inexplicable. It's so tragic and so painful and so confusing. I, I, I had, I didn't even realize it, but I had always held on to this belief that our hope was supposed to be smiley and happy and, and, you know, positive and we need to look to God that way and it's all good, you know, that's the moniker of our, of our faith and, and yet it wasn't, it was bad. It was, it was dark. It was a really bad situation that created... Every, every possible emotion from, from deep sadness to deep, deep anger. And so at her memorial service, I did the most spiritually and emotionally immature thing that I could have done. I looked right into the eyes of a grieving mother that just lost her daughter. And I said, I'm so amazed at how strong your faith is. You are such an inspiration. God's being glorified right now. Now, while that may sound good, I, I was so emotionally inept that I was trying to make myself feel better by pumping her up. How much more powerful and more connecting and more human would it have been if I had just simply said, I am so sorry. I don't know what's going on. I don't know why God would allow this. In fact, it makes me kind of sad and kind of angry. 
And I know that I can't offer you anything that's going to take your pain away. And so all I can say to you is that you're not alone and that you don't have to grieve alone. And whatever you choose to do with your loss will be totally understandable. And no matter how extreme that response might be, we'll be right here. Instead, I mean, it's interesting, by using all this like, spiritual language, I actually created distance. Because it wasn't authentic. It wasn't true. This was more connecting. And so right where you are this morning, in whatever season of life you may be in, in whatever side of the time for this or a time for that that you may be on, on the, on the seesaw, you are exactly appropriate to approach God right now, right here. Let me bring this a little bit more personal. Let me, let me talk about my kids, and I know I'm kind of going over. Oh, I'm going to skip this for now. Sorry. It's a good verse. You should look at that. Um, <laughs> we are to come to him with Whatever the, you know, extremity of our heart and mindset and emotional capacity may be in the moment. And one of the ways that I, I'm learning to do this is with my children. Let me introduce you to my kids a little bit. I know many of you know them. So here's Joel. He is analytical and conversational. And uh, you, you can, you know, you can reason with him a little bit more. And when he is feeling something or if he is tense about something, he will tell you, I don't like that because you said I couldn't have it. And he will let you know. And you have to, like, enter into dialogue with him. And he's a, he's a good rule follower. And yet at the same time, though, he will tell you what it is that's displeasing him and why it displeases him. And so we were at Costco. And they, all the boys, they love the, uh, the forklift. You know, it beeps and it makes a lot of noise. They were just, like, drawn to it. And uh, so the, the, the driver was like, hey, boys, you want to you check it out and, and see it? And so they said, okay, yeah. Well, Joel, being, being a very good rule follower, you know, he doesn't necessarily step outside his bounds. And you can tell that he's like, I know I'm not supposed to be in here. So he's just kind of like, we're like, smile, Joel. And he's like, Ugh. So, you, I mean, you could tell that it's just like, he, he enjoyed it. It was fun. But you could tell he's like, I know that this isn't the rules. And I'm going outside the rules. And so you can kind of see his tension right there. And then my youngest, Zachary, he is passionate. He is all in. He gets on this thing and he says, how do you drive it? I want to turn it on. How do you do it? I mean, he had no fear. He dives in. He is just, there is no, like he is so loud <laughs> all the time. He's got to make his voice heard above his two older brothers. And so there's so many times where we're like, can, can you just talk softer? He's just loud, but he's, but, you know, but he's, he's passionate. He's just all in. He dives in. He is a snuggler and a tackler all at the same time. I mean, he's, uh, he's, he's a riot. And then there is Ethan. Oh, my sweet Ethan. I just I love this kid. He wears his emotion on his face. You can feel it in his body. He struggles to get his words out. And so he will just grunt and go, Ugh! and uh, he's all, he giggles loudly too. But when he's feeling something, when he's hurting, 
he doesn't necessarily have the conversational skills. He, he's trying to reserve himself a little bit. And so he literally will just go, <clears throat> and just put his feet down and go, <clears throat> and we try to come around and put our arms around him and he fights us and he says, no, I don't, I don't want that. So what we've had to learn is we, we don't necessarily have this long conversation with him. We can't just like squeeze him until he gives in. We just have to be with him. We just sit. And, and he puts a pouty face on. He goes, mm. And we ask him, are you angry, buddy? Yeah. And it's so honest. And it's so raw. And there's not an easy fix or a rational or, or reasonable response to it. We just have to sit with him. And just be with him. And without fail, he begins to soften and will put his head on your shoulder. And you can start to embrace him. But that time of just being with him is so crucial. It's not just a running into an embrace. It's not just a conversation to make sense of it all. It's just being with him. And so wherever you may be at right now, you can come to the Father. And for some of you, it may be a conversation. For some of you, it might be a big bear hug and you're all in. And for some of you, you just need to sit with him. Let him just be with you. Allow yourself to feel the security of the fact that he's not going anywhere. And that you can just start to rest in him. I certainly don't love these boys well all the time. And I demand and expect that they react a certain way and respond a certain way and talk a certain way. But, oh, when we get these little glimpses of, of clarity where we can see the heart of God, when we can just allow ourselves to let Ethan be Ethan, let him have his tension and just be with him, it's always more rewarding than if I try to force him to respond a different way. And so, as we respond now, and we go to the table, and we remember the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I'd encourage you to look up, look within, look around, look ahead, and come to him with all that you have. Don't try to sugarcoat it. Don't try to rise above one emotion or another. Again, wherever you at is exactly right to bring to him right now. Let's pray. God, thank you for the fact that you hear us and that you're listening and that you care. Thank you that you are big enough and strong enough to... to to handle our wrestling, to contend with our doubt, to contend with our melancholy. And thank you that you are encouraging enough to keep our hope alive and to not squash us. And so God, keep our eyes focused on you. And that wherever we may be at, that you would just be with us, sit with us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.